Hey, this is Chuck Shoot. If you enjoy my podcast and enjoy the content, uh, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your phone, and that way you'll never miss another episode of my podcast. Uh, I've got Mike Kaplan today, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. Really excited today. I've got a great guest. I know I say that every week, but this might be one of the biggest guests I've had so far. Uh, comedian, actor, writer, musician, fellow podcaster, Mike Kaplan. Hilarious guy. Um, I saw his stand-up and immediately knew this is a guy I'm going to follow. I'm, a, I'm definitely a fan um, I posted a clip on my Facebook. You can check that out. Um, he's got a special out on Amazon Prime right now. We're going to talk about all that stuff today in this interview. Um, the interview actually started a little later. It was supposed to uh, do it this morning, but what happened was uh, his girlfriend actually slipped on ice last night and broke her ankle. So he was in the hospital. Um, so we actually had to do it at a later time. I didn't know when we were going to do it. So he said, hey, I'm ready now. I'm like, oh, gosh. So I, I was at the gym. I raced home. I was a little flustered. Um, I forgot to hit the record button, um, but I, thankfully I caught my air. But it, the first couple minutes are, uh, are cut off. But um, all I asked him at the beginning was just we talked about the town that he's from, Livingston, New Jersey, how Jason Alexander and Chelsea Handler are from there. And he told me that Mitch Hedberg had died there. Um, and then I asked him about his upbringing how, because both of his parents are music teachers. And uh, he started playing the violin at age four. And so that's what he's talking about when I when I, you'll hear right now. That's where the interview starts. He's he's explaining how a four year old can play a violin because I was very curious about that. And then the rest of the interview should be fine with that. So uh, here he goes, Mike Kaplan. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Set your arm and then go from there, like with these specific motions to put it up. You know, like you know, four year olds are ice skating and doing gymnastics, and like not everybody's the best at everything, but and nobody's good at anything until they start but uh you know they it's sort of you start training early enough and then you learn and then they give you a tiny violin and uh you make horrible sounds with it and then eventually hopefully the they sound slightly better yeah i mean obviously and then you kept doing it and uh it sounds like you were you had obviously a natural artistic ability you like and then you like you ended up playing the guitar and you got really into that you like to draw um and, and then, you know, it's interesting when I first started watching your comedy, I could tell that you were really smart, similar to your buddy, Dan Wilbur. And that's why I think I like you guys. But then when I was doing my research, I, I, it's more than you, you're just, I mean, you actually have a bachelor's degree, um, from Brandeis university. And then you, and, and which is in psychology and philosophy. And then, um, you actually have a master's from Boston university in linguistics. So, um, talk about that, like how that's kind of helped you. Cause your bachelor's is in, um, again, psychology and philosophy. And you talked about maybe even you considered being a counselor or a teacher. And I got to say, as a, as someone who works in education, I think you dodged a bullet there. So how does uh, that? Well, uh, I think that we, I think every human being is, you know, potentially creative, uh, and, and, or actually, I think like, you know, most of us, when we're kids do some kind of, you know, uh, drawing or painting or singing or dancing or whatever it is. Like there's this, uh, this artist I like, a writer, a comic book writer named Linda Barry, who has these really great, like philosophical, uh, art 
one of the questions that she asks him one is, uh, how, how old do you have to be to make a bad drawing? Uh, because, you know, like if a two-year-old draws something and it doesn't look like photorealistic, you're not going to be like, hey, uh, try again, you know, right. you dummy. Um, you know, just uh, the, I, I've heard that the idea of like rewarding people for uh, not for achieving something or accomplishing something, but for just the action of doing it. Like, oh, you like if you're a parent or a teacher, be like, you're wow, look at look at what you're doing. You're like you're really doing something because the process of doing is what leads someone to be good at something. Mm-hmm. You know, you which for me, drawing, I I was good at it, and then I stopped doing it partially because I thought I was not getting better, but probably I didn't get better because at a certain point I stopped doing it. Right. Um, and it's not to say that everyone has the exact same capacity for all of the same topics. Like, so the, the talent that I, I can't say for sure how much, you know, uh, inherent talent I had, you know, for or music ability for the violin uh, existed, or if it was just that my mom was so, Gung ho, she's like, I love music and I want my son to love music, so I'm going to, you know, dip him in this, you know, the river music. <laughs> right. Uh, but so you and, never thought of going into the music or the arts in school. You never thought of majoring in that. You know, you didn't take drama or theater or anything like that. Well, no, but but so I started teaching myself guitar in uh in high school and I loved it because I wasn't required to do it. That was one of the things that, which I didn't explicitly uh, think all of this at the time, but I mean, the violin was sort of mandatory. And so, you know, the the summer camp that I went to for many years uh, called Bucks Rock, it was a creative and performing arts camp. And uh, the, I believe the, the original founder of it, Ernst Bulova, he said once uh, something that stuck with me that he said, children, uh, love to learn, but they don't like to be taught. Uh, <laughs> the idea, and I think that's for a lot of humans, like, you know, we don't like to be told what to do. Right. You know, like one time my dad reminded me that it was my grandmother's birthday and he was like, to give her a call. And I was like, I was gonna, like, I already yeah. knew, you don't, you know, uh, so that instinct exists. And then, you know, as an adult, as we get to be adults, like we hopefully, you know, become our own parents, become our own, both like teachers and learners in ways. And we, you know, reach out and like ask people for advice or guidance or look to see who is doing things that we, you know, that we wish we could or want to and be like, Oh, what did they do? And then not be like, Oh, you can't tell me what to do. Be like, Oh, like, I mean, will you tell me what you did or what I can do? And so that for me, the guitar was that I discovered, mm-hmm. uh, I just, you know, picked it up and started teaching myself because uh, my mom had music, sheet music around that I could just learn from. And I had, you know, my fingers knew how to do like a uh, stringed instrument action because of the violin. So at that point, I was grateful for the fact that the, the violin had been foisted upon me, all those like skills, uh, like undesirably uh, right. now, now, now gratefully. Um, and so that when I went to college, I, I loved playing the guitar. I loved writing songs. I actually, I joined an acapella group. I joined a chamber choir at school, but I, I explicitly did not choose. I chose not to major in music for the very reason that I wanted to just keep loving it. I wanted to not, like I took a class in the 
introduction to the moving image, a film introductory film class. And the first day they said, you know, after this class, you're not going to be able to enjoy a movie the same way again. And I'm like, but I love to enjoy movies. Right. The class. Yeah. Jeez. So, and, yeah. Do you feel like it, as you get older, too, it's harder? Like, like you said, when you say, you know, people want to almost kind of not necessarily force stuff on you, but like they, they don't like being told what to do. I feel like as I get older, that's harder when people try to tell me what to do, I'm like, I'm 41 years old. I feel like I'm too old to take orders. Like, I don't, do you have that similar kind of feeling with that kind of thing? Well, I think that, I mean, the hope is that as we gain age, we also gain wisdom, experience, perspective, uh, the capacity to know, like, you know, there's still like, we. St- I'm also 41 and I know like I know more than I did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years mm-hmm. ago when I was a kid. Uh, and also I know that I still, I certainly don't know everything about everything or even about anything, even the things that, you know, if we're an expert in one thing, like right. we don't know everything about that thing. And surely we don't know everything about the other things. So I do think there's a quote I like from this poet named, I think it's Robert Haas or Hass, H-A-S-S. He says, repetition makes us feel secure. Variation makes us feel free. And so we do sometimes as human beings, like we value both, like comfort and freedom, security and like new things, like in sort of like a, maybe a yin yang, you know, you need some of each, like you don't want to do the same thing every day with no variation. Uh, But also perhaps you have some rituals, some perhaps your job or hobbies or relationships there's if there are constants yeah uh, that consistency brings us comfort so yeah. it's like yeah and maybe there can be a fine line between uh comfort and boredom but with respect to learning new things like my grandmother is 91 or yeah just turned 91 wow. and she she's on facebook she plays scrabble with her friends hmm. online like she learned how to do that you know there were yeah hardly hardly cars or movies when she was mm-hmm. you know wow. growing up um but it sounds maybe, like yeah you, you, you kind of need both you need the that stability but you also need some sort of variety or you're going to get bored like you said you need to be and like i think learning is a big thing too you got to be learning new things and and so my grandmother now she has a, a cell phone but not a smartphone she's like i'm not going to get one of those i would never learn how to use it and i'm like you learned how to use like this gigantic you know this completely <laughs> new thing and she's like ah but that was a while ago and like it's interesting because i think that she could you know if she wanted to sure she did and obviously at at certain points like you know maybe our capacities might diminish as we get older but that also might just be sort of you know the ageism that exists within uh our culture's ideas because she's still very sharp in many ways she's uh, competent and capable and so you as a 41 year old you know she doesn't want to be told what to do you don't want to be told what none of us right. want to be or we want to be in as much control as possible of what of who's telling us to do what you know like if right. we want to learn something new if we want to be like i want to if you if you wanted to start learning how to play an instrument or a language uh to learn like now you would either get books or watch tutorials or you could get a teacher and like when you hire a teacher you're like will you please tell me you know what to do how to do this or you know what learn by watching other people and there's there's different there's uh you know different personality types uh and different probably manners in which people learn so 
for myself, uh, I was that again, that is just why I, I was like, I want to love music. And so I don't want to have, I don't want to have to take classes that mm-hmm. somebody says, you got to take this music history class. If right. you want to really be an expert in music, like, well, I would want to do the thing that I love, which right now is playing the guitar, writing songs, singing mm-hmm. songs, performing, eventually leading me to comedy. Cause some of my songs were funny and I performed them at a comedy club. And then in between the songs would talk and be like, Oh, this is, really fun as well and i expanded the talking and i was like ah, now i don't even have to bring the guitar anymore <laughs> but one of the reasons that i went to grad school uh was because i didn't know exactly what i wanted to do uh when i was out of college other than i did actually i mean i did it's funny to say it like that i did know exactly what i wanted to do but i didn't know how and i couldn't quite do it yet because what i wanted to do was be a singer songwriter be a professional performer recording artist and I knew that at age 21, 22, I didn't have a fan base. I hadn't produced, you know, albums that were selling uh, so that I could make my living from that. So I knew that I needed to continue to live and do something to make money and pay rent while I was doing the actions of getting both better at, you know, the art of performing, creating music, comedy, uh, and figuring out that comedy was the thing that my career was morphing into, which is kind of nice, leaving music still as just a beloved hobby that yeah. I don't have to do. Right. Um, so speaking of, of the comedy, like, what were your early, like, how, like your early comedy influences? Like, I know you're a fan of Back to the Future and Groundhog Day because you talk about those in your routine, but is there other movies that are TV shows or comedians that, that influence your comedy? Uh, well, I mean, on one level everything influences everything that we do. So, you know, I could tell you, uh, I could tell you a bunch of movies that I remember, like probably the princess bride was something that I loved, uh, growing up. I probably, I watched, you know, Roseanne. I watched, you know, the fresh prince. I watched, uh, like reruns of cheers and night court. I loved mad about you. Actually the first comedian who I ever saw a full one hour special of was Paul riser when I was probably like a young teenager. I think he had a special that came out in the eighties and I thought maybe they were showing it on VH one. And I just, I loved it. I was, you know, I was a kid. I was, I'd never kissed a girl and I'm (laughs) loving this comedy about a man talking about his wife and like living with a person monogamously and you know, the, the kind of things that he, he then talked about on like they got, they discussed on mad about you. Sure. And I, I, got, I got his book couplehood and I read it and I got it on tape and I just listened to it while I drove. And it was just still, you know, like to this day now, you know, in every relationship I've been in, something will happen and I'll be like, Oh, this is just like that Paul Reiser bit about <laughs> couples and, to the point, one one girlfriend like ten years ago, she was like, "I, she's like, I don't know if I always hated Paul Reiser, but I certainly hate him now." <laughs> uh, that is. Did you ever meet Paul Reiser or ever work with him? I did get to open for him oh. once, maybe like four or five years ago at a, a casino in upstate New York, and it was uh, a delight. He was wow. his, he had brand new material from uh, since thirty years ago, which is great. Uh, <laughs> That's good. And I, you know, I told him that he was the first comedian that I'd ever really uh, experienced the comedy of, and he was, he was very gracious. And uh, yeah, it was it was a pleasure. Um, but also, to answer your question of what what comedy influenced me, I think 
in one way, sort of a double-edged sword. Like I have some friends who, uh, like my friend Shane Moss is a comedian who like knew he wanted to be a comedian since he was a child. Tommy Jonigan, another friend, they're like, they were watching like maybe Letterman, Conan as kids or watching stand-up, knowing that stand-up was a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, you know, immersed themselves in it and loved it and then became wonderful stand-up comedians, like, having had that be their goal the whole time. Whereas for me, I didn't even really know that it was a thing. You know, I knew hmm. that Paul Reiser was one, but he was also a famous person. I knew that yeah. Seinfeld was one, but he was a famous person. Everybody on Saturday Night Live, like I saw a Dana Carvey special, a Norm MacDonald special. It, I honestly didn't, uh, the way that I thought about it at the time, as a teenager, I was like, okay, so I guess once you're a famous person on TV, then you can do stand-up. <laughs> okay. I really did, I didn't know that there were like unknown comedians because I didn't know any unknown comedians. Sure. No, that makes sense. So then did you, did you morph the, the, the music into the stand-up? Like, did you start off doing the songs and then one day you actually just didn't have the guitar and you just did the stand-up jokes? Uh, almost. So at the same time, uh, I, so around my senior year of college is when I started really performing my music at around Boston where I was in school. And so, like I said, uh, when I performed first at this comedy club, which I just, I, I looked up online where like clubs were, where like rock mm. bands could perform, where singer songwriters, folk singers, whoever. And I, I asked friends who were in bands to like recommend me. And, you know, lots of places were just like, you need to, have a fan base, you need to bring people, you need to, you know, or do open mics. And uh, so the comedy studio is the first comedy club I performed in. And I went there uh, and they gave me five minutes and I played like two short songs, you know, like two minute songs. And in between, I just talked or like at the beginning, I talked oh. like the very first time I performed. Uh, I went on right after Jonathan Katz, who at the time oh, yeah. or recently had had the show on Comedy Central, right. Dr. Katz therapist which i had seen and i loved and he lived in that area in the boston area and he performed and so i was about to go on and he closes his set which is great with uh he does a song and i was like so i came on and i honestly i mean this must have been i was saying it as a joke but also out of genuine like concern and nerves i was like this is my first time performing at this club this is my first time performing at any comedy club I'm going, I'm here to do like comedy songs, like, you know, funny music. And Mm -hmm. I'm performing after the most famous funny person in the room just did exactly that. So, uh, I, I'm, so I was like, I hope this is good too, you know? Um, and so I feel like those, that those nerves were like endearing to people. Like people Mm. laughed. At, hmm. at what I was saying, whatever it was. I, I must have said it way better than what I do right now. But uh, <laughs> I was so funny when I was just starting out. And now it's gone all downhill. But <laughs> um, I, so that was the thing that I had never, I had done like funny to my friends. You know, I, if I performed at like a talent show or a coffee house, like it's a very common thing if you're a musician to, you know, say a couple things before you start your song. But I hadn't like written jokes. Mm. But I just found out that in between the songs and like around when I wasn't doing the songs, if I was saying things like sometimes it would make people laugh. And that Mm. was, that was what made me want to do comedy. So sometimes people ask me, you know, when, when did you know you wanted to do comedy? And I'll say it was just after I started doing comedy. 
uh, I knew that I wanted to because I already was doing it. I was like, oh, I want to do what has already happened again. And uh, yeah, so that is hmm. that is what I was doing while I was in grad school, which right. I was giving myself the opportunity to to do because I knew at that point I was like, oh, I want to keep doing this. Uh, so I I went to BU. I I loved linguistics. I was studying that for its own sake. I was living as a resident assistant, so I didn't have to pay for housing. So it was uh, I just got to you know do that job, go to class. And then go out pretty much every night and uh, do comedy. Yeah, and then you won uh, the funniest student contest. So did that kind of give you a jumping-off point to thinking hmm, maybe I can do this for a living? You know, uh, yes, and also uh, I already had like a delusional level of self-confidence <laughs> fired. By, I mean, in part, my family, I was an only child and I was told that I could do anything. I could right. be president, you know, that, and uh, now I'm like, oh, I, I don't think I can and don't want to. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, that's a thing. But also like society, you know, I was, I'm a straight white male and uh, I'm an American. I was raised, you know, with, with so much. Yes. Uh and I didn't even know about these things. I didn't know about all the, the currents that were carrying me forward. Hmm. Uh, like I read, I read an article once about two transgender academics who were working in their, I think in the same field. One of them uh, was assigned female at birth. One of them was assigned male at birth. And uh, each of them at a various point, at, originally in their career were living as their, that assigned gender. But uh, then transitioned and lived as their their true gender and so they both experienced living and working uh, and being treated as male and female and that the the main takeaway uh, from from this piece was when they when for both female uh, time periods whether cisgender or or transgender like the, the people were treated uh, worse, hmm. like in their in their community, in their academic community, like there was sexism that was affecting them. And when they were uh, when male presenting uh, male being, uh, they were treated like with more reverence, with more respect. So they were, you know, uniquely able to spot this current of sexism that you know runs through our society that most people don't get to experience both sides of you right. you know if you're not gender fluid if you're not transgender if you're not uh somebody who has lived uh presenting as multiple genders then you don't you only know your own experience and you can't compare it to somebody else's because you haven't right had it but for these two people they both were aware they're like oh wow like and so the, the analogy to the current is like, if you're, you know, if you're a man, if you're any privileged class, uh, again, it doesn't mean that you have everything easy, but the current is pushing you forward. So you're traveling farther with the same amount of work. Right. Uh, and, it, and then that can be like a, an, a positive feedback loop. Like you're like, oh, wow, I guess I'm good at this. And so you mm. then work harder and keep doing it. And then you mm. actually, it's like a fake, so you 
make it, you do get better at the thing yeah. because the thing that makes you good at it is doing the thing. Whereas if you are, let's say, you know, a woman in a sexist field, which is many fields, uh, you are putting in, you know, they, sometimes they say you got to work twice as hard to achieve half as much. And sometimes that's because the current is pushing against you. And so the right. current is you're, you're like, I think I'm working just as hard as, uh, as these people, but they are, they're getting farther than me. And that can be disheartening and disillusioning. And then that can cause people to, you know, quit and then not achieve as much because you know, through mm-hmm. no fault of their own hmm. because of systemic structures and so i understand that i have been the beneficiary of uh these systemic currents uh for you know many aspects of who i am how i live and you know what i do so this is all to say like because of the uh you know societal opposite of pressures you know the society the societal flow carrying me forward and also the love of my family and the support and you know all the the fortunate upbringing that I have where like when people are like when I started doing comedy I wasn't good Mm -hmm. I mean nobody is Hmm. when you start but I didn't know it and that served me people Mm -hmm. audiences were probably like literally and or at least figuratively symbolically telling me like you're not good at this but I was like I I think uh, my grandmother knows a little better than every (laughs) other right so but you must have had some adversity I mean I mean you have some strikes against you right I mean I don't know, maybe not in the entertainment business, but I mean, being Jewish, right? I mean, is there, do you ever face anti-Semitism or, and I mean, your, your yeah. comedy special, you know, small dork. I mean, so you're saying that I'm not saying, but you're saying you're small and you're, I mean, those things, did those not ever fight against you sometimes or the roles that you were maybe turned down because you weren't tall enough or too uh-huh. dorky or. Uh, I'm sure. First of all, how dare you? I am uh... <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's your special. That's what you called it. I didn't say it. <laughs> I understand, and uh, we're all having fun here. No, um, no, no. I got to tell you this story, though, real quick, though. But going back to the sure. Jewish thing. So I dated a Jewish girl for like an entire year, right? And one time we were selling uh, – I was moving to Arizona from Seattle, and I was selling my mattress on Craigslist. And these people came over to look at it, and we had agreed on a price, I don't know, $150, whatever. They said, yeah, don't worry. We got you the full $150. we are not going to Jew you. And my girlfriend is right at the time, Jewish girl standing right there, like said that right in front of her. It was the, like, I mean, I thought she was going to reach over and slap him. Like I couldn't believe people like it just, that kind of stuff makes me cringe. So you, you must've had, there must be a story of that for you, right? Somewhere. I mean, I think that, yeah, probably like, I, I don't know when I learned about, you know, that, like, the word Jew being used as a verb, like it did, it seems, it seems almost uh, cartoonish because <laughs> it, it's right? not something, but there are obviously people who have grown up with it. And, and I've still, still seen people. There's, there's a comedian friend of mine from Boston named Dan Bolger, who's very funny. And uh, he has a great joke about how like a lot, I feel like this happens also with the word, gay like the mm-hmm. word you know gay uh can be used by a proud gay person to be like i'm gay but also the word can be used you know pejoratively and uh depending on tone and intent like you know and there's a lot of a lot of kids growing up at least when i was a kid and for perhaps still but certainly going back far enough uh people are using the word as a slur but so my friend dan's joke was about people who they're like his impression of a person who's like, 
Now, when I call, I'm not, I'm not meaning gay like homosexual. Like, you know, if I say that I think traffic is gay, I'm not saying that traffic is a homosexual. I'm just saying that traffic is a thing that I hate. <laughs> God, and you're right, though. Yeah. So there are people who would say, oh, no, the, the verb to Jew, that it just means <laughs> it just means the stereotype about Jews, not that it's actually you know, it, I can't right. even really understand. So that's interesting I to hear you break that down with that masters in linguistics. I can hear that at work oh, right there. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, so I guess another I was I was fortunate that I that I was raised, uh, you know, in like a suburb of uh, in New Jersey and with, you know, I went to uh, decent. I mean, I went I went to school. I went to yeah, I, I had. I'm sure that there were some some kids and some parents and some families around that uh, you know wouldn't have been my favorite if I had gotten to know them all. But I honestly don't think that I ex- knew that I was experiencing anti-Semitism or like you know people making comments or treating mm-hmm. me okay. in a way because I was Jewish until adulthood, until comedy oh. really. Like where like I did a show uh, a few years into comedy, like I was opening for an Italian comedian. Uh, in the Boston area, who's a nice guy. Uh, and also, we were, I think the show was on April 15th, and he was like, April 15th, you know, that's uh, tax day. You probably, I'm sure you've got yours done. And I I was like, I do, I, honestly, I think I didn't even understand that he mm-hmm. was making a oh, joke about yeah. it. I was just like, I do have it done, and I don't understand why you're, <laughs> like, does, isn't everyone meant to have their taxes done by this day? Special about me, which yeah. also, I'm sure there's a lot of comedians with great jokes about like the idea that so many stereotypes like can be applied to so many people like Jews. They like money. Like who, who who's the group that doesn't like money? Oh, no money. <laughs> just Buddhist. I yeah. mean, like whatever the case is, like, so the idea that I, I thought that is a thing. I was like, Oh, there are like, I, I was, I, I knew that I wasn't, I knew that everybody wasn't Jewish, mm-hmm. but I, I knew that I was in some ways like the same as a lot of people. Like, you know, that it didn't really matter. It didn't really come up that much growing up. I did another show that I wrote a joke about. I mean, I just told the thing that happened, which is that they were bringing up all the comedians to music. Like they would bring up the, the DJ brought up a uh, black comedian to hip hop music. And they brought me up to the Price is Right theme song, um, which is, I think, not the same thing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, it's definitely not. I mean, I don't know what would it, like what it, it's weird. There's not there's not a, I mean there are a ton of Jewish songs, but they're not the yeah. most like they could have brought me up to dreidel, but the <laughs> like uh, for, for sure like I mean to answer your question of like I mean I there has been like everyone faces challenges. Everyone has adversity of yeah, some kind. Yes. So and it's in some ways uh all, I mean, all relative because we're all kind of the center of our own universe. Mm-hmm. And again, we don't have access to other people's like, I mean, so many of the, the, like a lot of, you know, the challenges uh, that we're learning about other people facing today is, I mean, one thing that's beautiful about, you know, modern technology, the internet, the fact that like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of negative things that come out of uh, social media, you know, the, the capacity for, you know, Nazis to find each other and uh, mm. unite in solidarity. And also, though, there are, you know, people like 
it used to be if you were the lone gay person in a town or you didn't know who else, you know, you're like, am mm-hmm. I, am I alone in the world? And now there are ways for, you know, people in marginalized communities to form community, you know, sure. across yeah. the world. And there's so, but, and I guess the idea that, you know, there's, there's so many people facing, like there's so many, we, everyone has, almost everyone has some kind of privilege, be it, you know, right. race, gender, sexuality, like able-bodiedness, class, uh, nationality, you know, if you're, if you're an American uh, citizen, if you're living in America, if, yeah. you know, all these, all these things, and, you know, and I think that it gets mistaken, you know, there's, there's confusion over like the term, even the term privilege. I've heard people be like, you know, if you're, let's say a poor white person, you're like, well, I don't have all the privileges that a, a rich white person has. And it's not about privileges. It's about the fact that like, you know, you have the privilege of like not fearing the same way that a black person does when the police pull you over. Um, that is, that is something that is in, if not uniquely, it's certainly uniquely a non-white experience. Right. Yeah. There's definitely things that I've never experienced as a straight white male for sure that like, yeah, I can't, I mean, really even relate to some of that stuff, obviously. And I'm also like, I don't like, I've been pulled over. Like I've never, I've not liked it. I've been afraid, but I've, you know, now I know like I've never been afraid for my life in the Mm -hmm. way that is much more reasonable for a non-white person to experience. And so like, so this is all, uh, I think hopefully relevant context for why I think it's more important for me to, uh, recognize and express and acknowledge the, the, the positives that I have, the, the good fortune that I've had yeah. rather than, to, you know, focus on like, Oh, my parents got divorced when I was 13. You know, th- these are all true. Like my parents mm-hmm. got divorced when I was like 13 or 14. Oh. Uh, we moved, I was starting over at a new school, uh, in eighth grade. Like I was shy and introverted and not very social and didn't really know how to make friends or meet new kids. So I, and I was an only child. So I was spending a lot of time alone. I I did have friends at the summer camp. And so I would see them once in a while. And like the two months of the summer was this beautiful, you know, magical utopia. And then the 10 months of the year for those like eighth grade through high school was uh, a slog. It was Hmm. challenging. I, you know, ate lunch sometimes just alone at my locker. There were some nice kids but I did, you know, it was, so I, I definitely faced, uh, you know, some challenging situations. So I do think that so much of my, uh, personality and experience was buffeted or, or, uh, helped by like the, the positive foundation, the formative years and caring family, uh, and childhood environment that I had that even, even when, like and this is kind of a uh, maybe an analogy that I've never specifically made before, but you know the the challenges of high school. I was like, well, I know that this isn't forever. I wow. I mean, it's not my, it's not my favorite. I don't even maybe I didn't know that then. Maybe it seemed like it was forever. But I was like, well, this is what's happening. Hmm. I know that there is joy to be had in uh, at summer camp. I know that. Yeah. I I do I do well in school. Like there were things that I liked about school, but then <laughs> comparing that to starting out in comedy, like I was, you know, not, I knew that I wasn't going to be 
uh, a superstar, successful comedian right out the gate. I was like, I understand that's hmm. not how you do it. You don't just yeah. come out and have an hour of comedy wow. that could be on TV. So I knew that when I went to open mics and did five minutes of comedy, uh, I was like, if one joke works, great. If a few jokes work, hmm. great. If, you know, and, and then tomorrow I do the ones again that worked and try new ones. And then maybe another new one works until eventually you have a five minute set that you think it, Hey, this works regularly more often than it doesn't. And then, you know, a year later you're like that five minutes is horrible. And mm. then that that's good because that means that you are improving. You're like, mm. Oh wow. I thought the stuff that I thought was good before, uh, whether the material or the delivery or the combination, like if, if you think you were bad before, that means that you think you're better now. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the goal. So you had a, yeah, it sounds like part of a big part of it was your mindset. Then you had a good mindset and you're playing the long game. You, you know, you realize you're looking forward and ahead and not um, dwelling on the, the negative times, like when you're, when you were in high school and stuff. So you have a couple jokes though, that I, I wanted to ask you about that. that obviously the, um, um, going back to the Jewish stuff, the, the Hitler time travel joke, that one is so clever. And then I'm actually Catholic and you do a little, uh, Catholic joke where about how the Catholic priests only sing two notes. And I was laughing so hard at that. Cause it's like so accurate. So I had to ask you, like, did you, were you friends with the Catholic pro- or Did you actually go to a Catholic church or did you just see that on TV or like, cause you nailed that. Uh, that's, I, I like this question for this reason. Um, so the fact that I am Jewish and not Catholic is like, is the thing that helps me understand at least uh, in parallel on a completely different scope and scale yeah. of how, how a, a person like how a person who is like a woman knows what it's like to be a woman, but also uh, in America, like uh, where I live, women live in a, a society that is patriarchal. A, so the, it's sort of like marked for like maleness is like the thing, like actor. That's the word that means either a man or a woman, but mm-hmm. it also means man. And you have to specify actress if you want to. You don't have to, but you can. Like comedian, comedian. Like it's a special different thing. And that's happening to every marginalized group. Every marginalized group, understands what it is like to be themselves and their identity and their part of the group. And they Mm -hmm. also understand the majority because it's everywhere. It's like, imagine like a quiet person, a quiet person understands what it's like to be a quiet person, but they also understand what loud people are because they (laughs) hear them all the time everywhere. Whereas a loud person might not understand what a quiet person is because they're not listening. They're just busy being loud. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the same thing for a black person in America. Uh, knows what it's like explicitly to be black. And they also understand that, you know, that we have a white supremacist society in which uh, the power has been uh, white since, you know, it was codified in the Constitution when they said, you know, all men are created equal. They they literally didn't mean women and they literally only meant white men. And so that to get back to your question for me, being Jewish in our society uh, I also, it's also, there's predominantly, the society is full of Christians. So I didn't even set out to learn about <laughs> You didn't have to, yeah. Catholicism. It, it happened through a kind of cultural osmosis. So nobody sat me down and was like, this is how priests sing. It just 
in movies on oh, TV yeah. okay. around like and so I did I did date a Catholic girl in college. I went to one Catholic mass with her, but okay. I have very little memory. The only the one thing that I remember is that uh, and this is like I was like twenty one, twenty two and uh the part where they said now you all like introduce yourself to your neighbors mm-hmm. and you say peace be with yeah. you and also with you and at the time that was a thing that I was like I didn't understand. It seemed kind of artificial and <laughs> arbitrary and I'm like who yeah. are these people like, i agree i hated that part that was the but part i hated the most about catholic church do you know i have a, a friend now who is a minister uh not catholic but uh a minister in chicago who's a good, very good friend of mine used to be a comedian went to divinity school now a minister and uh i i love her she's a wonderful friend uh she's a wonderful storyteller and uh when she, when I've, I've gone to the church that she preaches at one of them, uh, I feel like I am, you know, at, at age 40, I went to, uh, a church service where that same part happened, the peace be with you and also with you. And now I was like, Oh, now like I'm a different person and I like this now because I feel like I wasn't at peace before and I Hmm. am now more at peace. So Hmm. I don't look at people and think like, I'm now I'm like, Oh, I, I, w- I wish you peace. I really, <laughs> yeah. like, whoever you are, I want that for people I know, people I don't know, people who are the same as me, people who are different than me, because we all have some things in common and all have some things right. that are different. But yeah, yeah. to answer your question, uh, I learned I learned it by existing in society, and, <laughs> and I stumbled upon it sincerely. Like, that joke was created sort of, a lot of my jokes are created kind of piecemeal, like one snowflake at a time, eventually yeah. adding up into... You know, oh, okay. an ice sculpture avalanche. So it's cool. I, I like that joke. Singing. Yeah. Um, oh, thanks. I found myself singing that, <laughs> you know, chanting that way, and then it occurred to me that that was uh, a resonant thing that I had heard. Uh, I was like, oh, right. and so yeah, it came out. Perfect. Yeah. So um, I was listening to your Pete Holmes uh, podcast. The what you were guests on that. Um, I'm a big fan of his show Crashing. Have you seen that show? I wanted to ask you, like, is that an accurate portrayal of life as a stand-up? Like, as you are going through, is it is it kind of like that that kind of struggle that he goes through in that show? Have you seen that? Uh, yes. I. The answer to have I seen it is yes. Is it realistic? Uh, there are definitely many things about it. Like, so my grandmother is a nurse, and I remember, like, whenever I would be watching a medical show mm-hmm. with her, would be like that is wrong that would never happen like the heart's on the wrong side whatever it is you know i feel like <laughs> yeah they're probably better now but like when she was growing up or when she was you know younger she's like oh yeah they they don't care about accuracy and i think that i think that pete you know did a good job and the, the people who created the show did a yeah. good job uh, being like authentic and genuine so also i would say that like some of the things that are like less realistic are i mean if his life you know, his career happened over the course of, let's say, I think he and I both actually went to uh, the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival and were new faces uh, in 2009, so 10 years ago. Hmm. And I had started doing comedy like seven years before that. And I think he did as well. I think we both started around the same 2000, somewhere between 2001, wow. 2003-ish. And so the I, what when you watch the show, I mean, there were three seasons of the show yeah. and he went from not doing comedy to the level of success that he achieved over the course of 17 years in two years or three right. years. Okay. So I think that every, I mean, cause 
it would probably make for a more boring show <laughs> if they were like, and now yeah. this week is another open mic, and this week right. is another open mic. Um, so I think out of, you know, the necessity of, you know, maybe, you know, what do they don't let the don't let the truth get in the way of a good story or yeah. don't let the facts get in the way of the truth or whatever, you know, yeah. some something that makes sense to say. Sure. But like every episode, you know, he had a different experience that was like I think any episode in isolation, you could look at it and be like, Oh yeah, there's a lot of like that's a realistic look at like this club life. Like I liked the episode in the final season where Dove Davidoff played a comedian who was like a sexist older comedian who got like demoted uh when he was uh people didn't love his comedy for mm-hmm. reasons that make sense hmm. um oh like yeah that's a thing that, i remember that, that. can happen and I, it was so it is it was i i did i love watching the show i yeah. think compared to a lot of other portrayals of comedy in fiction uh because pete has been a comedian for so long and yeah. so many of the writers also have been i think they did a great job of uh, you know capturing it encapsulating it making like a little a diorama you know mm-hmm. like <laughs> if you look at a diorama you're like is this exactly to scale maybe not but yeah. man it really it, they did a pretty good job yeah no they did and then he should have had you on as a guest but one show that you did get to go on as a guest that i think is really cool you got to tell me about this i know you i think you just had a little cameo but you were on the show louie so can you tell me about that like how did that come about and what was it like being on that set because that's one of my favorite shows I gotcha. And I mean, it's funny, funny in a way, because I feel like they're, you know, the way that when, uh, when baseball players, I think, you know, get home run records, but then we find out they were doping. You put asterisks <laughs> next to their, their name or number. Right. Like, I mean, Louis for so long, uh, was, you know, the, the guy, the, the biggest, you know, the, the Carlin of, of his era of this, of that generation. And, uh, and so I was at the time, like, I mean, I felt very fortunate to have, I'd, I'd gotten to open for him mm-hmm. a number of times. And, uh, and wow. so the way that I got to be on the show was he, uh, either, I think he called me and left me a message and said, if you can get over here tonight, uh, to the comedy cellar, then, uh, then do it. Wow. And, and I did. I mean, he, he booked, he booked other comedians who were just his friends and yeah. people who he knew, uh, to, to play. Like, I mean, there were so many wonderful people on that show. I love, yeah. uh, I think Maria Bamford got to be on it. I think Doug Stanhope, who's one of my favorites. Like I love, I, like, and so it is obviously, I feel like it's, there's a, a comedian friend of mine, uh, named Reese Nicholson. Uh, we, Reese is an Australian man who, I met at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2015, and then last last year, 2018, he and I were in at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival together, and we had we shared the same like large dressing room. We were in like the same complex, mm-hmm. and uh, when Louis's name came up, I bring I bring Reese up because I think Reese said the the funniest thing because like Louis is so has been so influential and impactful in the lives of so many comedians and comedy audiences, but also it seems like there needs to be an asterisk of some time of some kind, because if you bring up his name without, it seems like, are you ignoring? <laughs> are you actually not acknowledging? Like there's been some other, other things. Have happened. Like, yeah. Uh, oh, definitely. Just separate it. So definitely. what he said, he was like, 
So as Louis said, God rest his soul. Oh and, God. <laughs> uh, I think that that's a, a fun, I think that's a funny thing and, you know, encapsulated in shorthand for, you know, for the, at least the people discussing uh, the topic that, oh, yeah, there's this is it's it's an important thing to consider, think about and know about. Well, also, you know, like you can you can think fondly. Uh, you, people have complicated relationships with their families mm-hmm. or certain yeah. relationships. It's true. Uh, it's a uh, it's. It needn't like some. It's. I was thinking about this recently. That you know, I feel very grateful that you know. I mean, my family. Nobody's perfect. No family is perfect. Like we all end up. Like we're all treated certain ways when we're younger. We're all treated certain ways when we're older, and then we become ways. And we can always be growing and learning and changing and uh, thinking about you know what how we want to be, how we best want to live. Like you know, if like my grandmother was you know, abused physically a lot. And then she did not physically abuse my mother, but her mother had been abused. It was like a whole, Mm. you know, just a line back of abuse. And then at a certain point, you know, so sometimes if you get abused, you abuse people. Sometimes if you get abused, you're like, I never want to do that to people. So that's why my grandmother didn't hurt Mm. my mother physically. Like perhaps who knows what else, you know, there were emotional challenges for everyone. And so my mom also never hit me if I had kids I wouldn't hit them right I'm not even mm-hmm. having kids so there's not even uh, right. anyone to hit yeah um and so I think that w- I feel grateful that I'm like oh yeah my my family uh, uh average very decent and <laughs> and that's easy like I'm like they're in my life I yeah. care about them I'm grateful for them I spend time with them for some people uh they might have the opposite experience where they're like, I know for sure I don't want my family in my life. They don't treat me well. So I'm cutting them out. I have my, I don't, I don't talk to my biological family, but I talk to my logical family, my chosen family, not, you know, my, and so there's some, on either end, there can be at least clarity. Like obviously that Mm -hmm. sounds like a much, a much more challenging road to go. But then also there's a challenge in the middle. If it's, you know, if your family is challenging enough, that you don't want to you uh, cut them out, but you also don't want to hang out with them all the time. Right. Uh, like what is, is where are the boundaries? You're right. And yeah. there's so many things like that where oh, and so I feel like we live in a, a society, maybe as human beings, like we like categorizing. We're like, is this good or bad? Is it yeah. dangerous or helpful? Black and white. And and there's so many so many situations uh, which I mean even that itself, that my that mode of thinking can be uh, unhelpful sometimes because, uh, like, I have a friend who does a kind of therapy called dialectic or dialectical behavioral therapy. Oh yeah, DBT. And, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, and the idea is that these dialectics are essentially maybe conflicting emotions that exist within you, like mm-hmm. the and and that they can both be true. Like you can have a resentment and also a love for the same person. Like you can, and we might, you might beat ourselves up for like, for, I'll just say for myself, if I, if I get into like a few weeks ago, I like had an interaction with a friend that was challenging and I, I didn't behave exactly the way that I wanted to behave. Like I, you know, either said things that I didn't want to say or didn't say things that I did want to say. And then later I was kind of beating myself up over it. And then I was beating myself up for beating myself up over it. And I want intellectually 
you know, to be compassionate to everyone, including myself, especially like in that situation, I don't think I did anything quote unquote wrong. I just, I was, I was kind of, you know, the victim of my own circumstances in that, like my, nobody would, nobody wanted anyone to not be feeling good in this interaction between me and my friend. But I like spiraled into uh, a, a darker place for a little while until I could, you know, uh, either process it, acknowledge it, move past it, uh, forget about it, uh, some combination of all of those at a time. And now, in hindsight, I can look back and be like, well, you know, the, the feelings that I had were legitimate at every point, but I kind of didn't want to have these negative feelings. And that's huh. the thing for me. I'm like, like, I'm not supposed to have these negative yeah. feelings. I was told I was good. I was told I was capable of doing anything. So if I, I'm capable of doing anything, like, why can't I be happy when I'm sad? Why can't? And then having, having the, being accepting of the idea of being like, oh, okay, well, I, of course, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not, uh, uh, in, I'm not a, a divine, enlightened Buddhist master, uh, at this stage, mm -hmm. at, in this manifestation right now. I'm like, we're all one. So I am one somewhere, but right here, right now, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, like, forgive yourself for yeah. you know, not That's doing important. everything. Yeah. Perfectly. Well, one thing you did do, uh, not necessarily perfect, but this is definitely a big highlight for you was, um, in 2009, you were on The Tonight Show. And, and it's interesting because I looked it up and it wasn't the Leno show. It wasn't the Fallon Tonight. It was actually the Conan, which I, and I love Conan. It looked like and now you've been on Conan multiple times. But talk about that first time that you got to go on The Tonight Show. I mean, was that the moment where like you called that girl that had turned you down and told her, hey, I'm on The Tonight <laughs> Show, bitch? Or like, I mean, were you like really like pumped about that? Like, did it feel, had to have been a huge like ego boost, right? Yes. Uh, I, I will say, uh, at you, I, I bet knowing me, you can guess whether or not I did call the girl who turned me down. As, I like, I like that. I'm just you, saying that's what I would have done. I would have told everybody <laughs> I'd call my high school guidance counselor. I said, you never, you said I'd never amount to anything. Look at me now. Like, I mean, don't, isn't there like a little piece of you or do you feel like just success in itself is the best revenge? Uh, ha, 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 ha. I was with you right up until Venge. I would say the best <laughs> reward. There you go. Um, sincerely, uh, like, so there's a couple, couple things to say here. Like, number one, there was way more than one girl who turned me down. Uh, number <laughs> two, actually, I wrote a song about this when I was in college because, like I said, I, you know, I started having crushes on girls, like, when I was, you know, 12, 13. I remember mm -hmm. being like, but I, it seemed like everyone else, there were certainly the, the loud people who I saw. I was like, I don't know what, what it's like to be them because they're like, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm conflating to, let me, let me back up for a second. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like dating girls. I wasn't hooking up with girls. Like until I think I kissed my first girl when I was like almost 17. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like when I was like 13, 14, there was kids, you know, hooking up, making out, like right. sleeping together. Like, I was like, it seemed like it was everyone, like the same way that I was talking about, like loud people earlier. Like if, if you don't realize that there are quiet people also, mm -hmm. you might be like, it seems like everyone's loud right. because everyone's loud. Everyone who's loud is making all the noise. The quiet people aren't making any noise. Are there even any quiet people? Obviously there are. And so there were probably tons of kids who were feeling just what I was feeling. Um, 
but I remember like eventually when I got to college, you know, like I, I kissed a girl at summer camp when I was 16, 17. And, and then I, I kissed another girl and then, uh, and they also kissed me. It was a, a, a mutual kissing situation. Uh, I didn't just like run up and like peck somebody on the cheek and run away. Um, and I remember in college, like I, I finally felt more like social and a part of things and a little more extroverted and more like the self that I was becoming. And so I wrote this song about how when I was a kid, I had wished for like a surprise party to happen where at the surprise party, I would just show up and then they'd be like, surprise. And it would be all of the girls who I had ever rejected. And they'd all be like, just kidding. We all like you. <laughs> and oh, that is that hilarious. Was- that was a dream that I had. And so I wrote as a song about this concept. And then the kind of the ending of the song is that I eventually this kind of gradually happened, not literally with every girl, but the fact that now there were people that I liked, people who I had crushes on, people I was attracted to who also felt the same way about me and that mm-hmm. I was going on dates. I was yeah. having girlfriends. I was being social. I was like, Oh, like the surprise party happened, but gradually the the greatest surprise i didn't even know it was a party until mm-hmm. i looked back and saw like the the discrepancy between the past and now yeah and so the same thing with with comedy like the everything also happened gradually like i knew when i started i wasn't good and that i i could become good that was i was hopeful and optimistic that i could it by doing it and then you asked earlier like when in 2005, when I won the Play student competition, was that a moment where, like, that was, it was a nice thing to happen. It was mm-hmm. a nice milestone. But by that point, I think I'm doing maybe like three or four years. Yeah. And um, I, I was developing, I had confidence at every point, but I feel like the same level of delusional self-confidence that I had um, was the, decreasing in delusion mm-hmm. and also increasing in awareness like you know because i feel like to be a comedian to be an artist a performer uh, a creator of any kind you need some combination of like delusional self-confidence to yeah. know that what you're doing is important even <clears throat> when you're not good at it and then you also need the self-awareness to like reflect later and be like oh yeah i i want to uh get better because this isn't good yet you need to have it right. be an accurate <laughs> reflection and also you need to have like a potentially for myself a rosy ref- uh, like be like oh like that was bad before, but I'm good now. Even if it's not true, it'll help keep it, you know, carrying you to the next level. And so that was also happening with like steps in the Boston comedy scene. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't getting paid work and then I did get a job and then I got another job and mm. I kept getting. So there was many more. milestones. It wasn't just like one thing. It was a lot of steps is what it sounds like. That is so, but looking back, I certainly being on the tonight show for the first yeah. time was, a great, a great pleasure. Like when I, I mean, even getting the email from the booker, yeah, uh, who is still the booker of Conan. Like I, in like June of 2009, I think uh, I got an email from a guy who said that he had seen me two years earlier auditioning wow. for a different festival that I didn't get. I got a call <laughs> back to the festival that HBO uh, used to put on in Aspen. And he said he, he, he liked me then. And wow. now that he was in a position to, potential to book the stand-up oh. on Conan's show that which was the tonight show that I think it had it was just starting oh. in June of that year wow. and he said I 
I, here's these jokes of yours that I like if you want to put together a tape uh, for consideration, that'll be great. And I, I, I had just started working with a manager and I, I was, I wasn't even sure if it was like true or a prank. I was like, it, <laughs> the email says it's coming from yeah. NBC, but is this, I don't know. I don't, I didn't know his name at the time. Right. And so it, but I found out that it was legitimate and I started working with him and you know, we eventually, I think in July locked in what said it would be. And I had it on tape and then learned maybe in November that I'd be taping it in December. So it was again, a piecemeal process, but then yeah, when doing it was full of kind of, you know, nerves and value and, uh, it, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. I had no, no thought about going back and like, there was nobody that I was mad at. No, I mean, I'm kind of half kidding with that, but I'm just, you know, it just, it's got to feel that like kind of top of the world feeling where like, okay, I've made it. I've, I've, you know, I've, I know if there were, were people that didn't believe in you, I mean, you've obviously proved them wrong by doing that. And then you continue to go on Conan. So you must, you saw that relationship with the booker then because you were on there like five times or something, right? Oh yeah. Uh, mm. so, something like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it w- it felt wonderful to, I mean, cause part of, part of comedy, part of, I think any artistic endeavor is you're expressing yourself in a way, hopefully that only you can. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, and like, I mean, it starts from you. It doesn't, it's the comedy doesn't start from what do I think people will laugh at? It starts from what do I think is funny or meaningful or important or personal or resonant to me? And then you express that. And then, you know, through working in front of different audiences, like the audiences, like instruments that help you, you know, tune, uh, future audiences, tune the material. Like it's all like kind of, you're the instrument, they're the instrument. And, eventually like you're the like the question of you know of course you want them to laugh of course you want the response the response is also kind of a bonus to the the doing the process again like the when you're you know when you're doing the thing that is your thing that is hopefully you know uniquely yours as much as anything can be uh then but then also yes these external measures like it's i love i loved conan i love letterman like getting to be on their shows was uh, a particularly special feeling because it's like, oh, this person who I think is funny and special mm-hmm. now is offering me this uh, this opportunity wow. based on the fact that I am in my way funny and special. So yes, certainly. Yeah. Long answer, all of that. Short answer, yes, it felt good. Yeah. So then, I mean, going kind of what about the appreciation of artists? Like, I, you know, things are obviously very different in 2019 with fans and fan, like people always ask me, how do you get, get these guests on your podcast? I'm like, I just message them. So like with the, with social media and the meet and greets after shows, it's obviously a lot easier for comedians and musicians and other entertainers to interact with their fans. And there seems to be a bigger desire to do that, to get the selfie to, you know, to meet with them. Do you think that it's too much in terms of fan interaction or do you, you feel like it's like a necessary evil that you got to do it, whether you like it or not, or do you enjoy it? Uh, I will say that short, I'll try to do the short answer now. <laughs> okay. I enjoy it. Yeah. I, okay. I mean, because especially like, along the theme of the, the gradual nature by which this all happens. Yeah. Like there's some people who at a certain point, if you have millions of followers, millions of people who are, you know, listening to what you say and do and responding, you might not be able to respond to millions. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, right now, you know, let's say I have 45,000 followers on Twitter and maybe somewhere around 18,000 Facebook 
fans, which is like, that's a lot of people. It's oh, more yeah. people than I could name or count, but <laughs> they don't all respond to everything I do. So right. like, if I post something like, I mean, there have been some tweets that have gone like massively viral in a way that I couldn't respond to everything. Mm-hmm. But then also, uh, you know, some of them might be a few, a few people respond. And if somebody responds positively, I'm grateful for it because I remember, and I, and it's still happening now that like, I can't do what I'm doing without people, uh, responding to it, enjoying it, paying for it, sharing it, you know, buying my albums, coming to my shows. Uh, so, and I do, I am an extrovert. I am a person who like thrives on, you know, uh, the communion of, uh, of this sort of thing. Like I've, I've dated people who started as fans. I have people who've become very good friends because they liked my comedy and they reached out to me. Um, and so, you know, it used to be, I was just a guy on Facebook and I had friends and if people commented, I would comment and we'd have conversations and that's how it was. And that's kind of still how it is. Like if somebody makes a joke and I like it, I comment or I, I like it. If somebody says something nice about a post that I make, I, I do my best to respond to everyone who says something nice. And if people say things that aren't nice, I sometimes will maybe take a beat, wait, strike when the iron is cold, see how I feel about it. Maybe say something back. Be like, why? Why do you say that? Why do you think that? Can mm. we, you know, even if we disagree about something, uh, unless it's like somebody's core identity being, you know, disrespected or disavowed. Mm-hmm. But if it's like, you know, if I have one political view and somebody has a different one, like if we come into things open-mindedly, like I, I do, I can get, I can overdo it. I sometimes, <laughs> you know, spend too much time online. Yeah. I think that's, but the, partially because I, I do enjoy it. I do like connecting with people. Mm. I do like communicating with people and especially when they are fans, especially yeah. when they like what I do, when they like my comedy, when they're saying nice things, when they sometimes are adding their own valuable, funny, meaningful thoughts and things. Like I've also had comedy develop out of, I've like shared pieces that started from fans saying things or friends mm. saying things, uh, and it's beautiful. Like my, the new hour of comedy I'm working on, my girlfriend's not a comedian, but she, the the hour is a lot about her hmm. and our relationship and my history with relationships and my growing as a human being and a boyfriend and a person and uh, the concept of marriage and togetherness and monogamy and forever. And, and she has like, she has helped me with my jokes and she has provided her, like some of it is about how, because we, are a couple together and she's not a comedian. Like if we have a funny experience or if she says something funny specifically, like she's not using it as a comedian. So I can because right. she's a generous, gracious gifter. <laughs> That's great. Um, but yeah. So I love, I do love, I, I mean, I, and also this relationship is like the longest one I've ever been in. It's like three and a half years now. And mm-hmm. we met because she's a comedy fan. She came to comedy shows in New York. She saw me. Uh, we became Facebook friends. I didn't realize that that happened because I have a lot of Facebook friends and sure. I, I, she like recommended a book to me. I responded, but we didn't like do anything further from that until mm. years later. I think that was, you know, several years before we met in person and, uh, I saw her at, after a show and wanted to talk to her and she was like, I want to talk to you. <laughs> and now we haven't stopped talking. So that's yeah, great. I feel like I like I like talking to people. That's awesome. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I know I have more questions, but I feel like it's probably time to wrap it up because I know you got to get back to your girlfriend. Um, I but appreciate I, it. I did want to uh, bring up uh, the highlight of, of a charity. You you host a show called Mike Kaplan and Friends with Benefits. 
It's a comedy yeah. variety show that benefits a different charity every month. So I don't know if there's any charities that you'd like to highlight here on the show before we uh, end it. Sure. Uh, I'll just, uh, I'll say that there's a website called givewell.org. Do you know that? Uh, no. Um, so givewell.org is itself essentially like a charity vetting organization. Oh. And so I learned about it through Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save, which I recommend. It's sort of about uh, utilitarian altruism, essentially. Mm. And you know, the help that we can do if, if we have, if we have more at any point, then we can help somebody with less. And so give well, uh, specifically looks at different, uh, charities and sees for every dollar they take in, like how much is actually going to the cause that they are purporting to help. And so they offer like sort of metrics as much as one can of efficiency. And they offer every year towards the end of the year. So right around now, like their top charities of the year. So if you go to givewell.org, you'll find the top one, I think, is usually something like the Against Malaria Fund or Foundation, because for like four or five dollars, you can get somebody a malaria net that might save oh. their life. And so uh, that's one. And then there's Give Directly, which just gives small either micro loans or just, you know, small amounts of money to uh, people for whom that will make, you know, all the difference in their being able to live thrive, survive. Uh, but yeah, so I, I would say go to givewell.org and that'll bring you to uh, a bunch of, there's other deworming mm. and uh, helping heal fistulas and like getting, you know, clean water for people. Like I forget what, what they all are, but they're all okay. there. Great. Givewell.org. So givewell.org, um, you can check out uh, your special is small, small dork and handsome is on Amazon prime right now. Uh, you're on all the yeah. social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I am as well. Um, you have a podcast, Broccoli and Ice Cream. So if you like podcasts, you can listen to your podcast. Um, and it sounds, I think you also have a couple upcoming projects. Uh, you have a, a, a cameo in Stalking Emo about uh, Stalking Emo Phillips. So I'm curious about that. And then a movie called, or a, I think it's some sort of pro- Mystery Mansion. I think you're going to be in that one too. That's coming out soon. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. are both uh, things that I was a part of long ago that are still in the works. Uh, so, yeah, if you... If you look at my IMDb, if it hasn't happened yet, yeah. it will happen. Okay. And I will also, in the coming year, release a new hour of comedy that I great. recorded this year called All Killing Aside. And then... Uh, <laughs> That's a great All title. Be- oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite. I mean, I think it's the best hour that I've made up to this point. And, oh, good. Uh, I look so forward to that. To share it with the world. Yeah. Uh, so look for that in, I believe, sometime in hopefully early, uh, early enough 2020. Okay. And then you'll share this interview on your, on your social media so they can all, all your fans can hear. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight or say before we end uh, it? You did a very thorough job and I appreciate it. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It really means a lot to me. And I was a little scared when uh, we had the uh, time change, but it worked out. So I appreciate it. Thank it you for keeping great. your word. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I, I wanted to talk. I love Dan Wilbur. Yeah had a great time and oh yeah shout you. out to dan wilbur he he is hilarious oh, yeah. i laughed so hard at his positive pranks and i just became an okay. immediate fan and then he uh, agreed to do my podcast i don't know i feel like it's almost like uh, a miracle that both of you guys did it it's it's uh, I'm really happy for that so appreciate it well thank you my friend okay uh, it's been a pleasure yeah if you're ever in phoenix or you have a show out here let me know i'll come see you i'll bring an entourage a hundred percent definitely will okay thanks again Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so that was Mike Kaplan. 
Wow. Uh, so much. There was some things that we didn't get to, but uh, I think we covered a lot. And uh, I really think everybody should check out his special. Um, I'm going to start listening more to his podcast. I've only heard a couple episodes, but he's a very talented comedian. Um, that clip that I posted on my Facebook page uh, made me laugh. So that was my first introduction to him. And I, I, I knew right away, this guy's a good comedian. He's really smart. So um, definitely check out his stuff. Um, if you want to follow me, I'm on all the social media. If you enjoyed this podcast, uh, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. So then to make sure you won't miss any podcast, future podcasts from me. Otherwise, uh, we'll talk until the, we'll <laughs> wait until next time. You'll hear me uh, in the next episode. I don't know when that will be. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Bye-bye.